basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. OMP? Go. AFC? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Last episode, we followed the trials and tribulations of the Agena program as it tried to recover from the failure of the Agena upper stage on the Gemini 6 mission. Now, the Gemini 6 mission had been supposed to be the first rendezvous and docking mission. In the end, the first rendezvous and docking had actually been accomplished on the combination Gemini 76 mission in December. Uh, but while that was a historic event, in truth much uh, more historic than the Gemini 6 mission would have been, since it involved two crewed capsules and four astronauts instead of a single capsule and a robot target, um, it had not actually accomplished all of the rendezvous and docking objectives that had been set for Gemini 6. First of all, because of course the Gemini 7-6A rendezvous um, didn't involve docking at all. Now, while the docking maneuver itself did not necessarily represent much of a stretch in terms of piloting, I mean, once close formation flying had been demonstrating, going all the way to contact didn't really represent a major pilot task, as Gemini 8 would show. But docking the two spacecraft would mean exercising some functions that couldn't be done any other way. Effectively, once docked, the two spacecraft became one. Figuring out how to control that combined spacecraft from one side of the interface or the other actually involved quite a bit of engineering that could not really be done any other way. Uh, once again, as Gemini 8 would show. First and most obvious of all, uh, there was the fact that the mechanics and dynamics of a combined spacecraft would be completely different than a single spacecraft. The centers of mass and thrust would shift dramatically, as would the pilot's frame of reference. I mean, instead of looking out at the forward window, now the pilot would be in the middle of the combined spaceship looking at, well, the middle of the combined spaceship. Now, while none of these things would be insurmountable, they did depend on, among other things, uh, the fact that the flight control system was properly tuned to the new mass model and that the pilot was trained and his instruments worked properly since his out-the-window view wouldn't be much use. And if there was one thing about space, uh, it's that any statement that contains even one if statement, much less three of them, uh, is something that you're really going to want to test. In addition to the physics of flying a new spacecraft, the engineering required to make the two spacecraft into one also required a certain amount of testing. And we talked in an earlier episode about the fact that having the Agena spacecraft able to switch from its normal local mode of being controlled by its ground controllers to a mode where it was controlled from the pilot in the Gemini spacecraft was not actually all that simple. It involved not only some fairly advanced, for the time, electronics, but it also depended critically on some mechanical interfaces in the docking mechanism, which had been tested on the ground, but had not been tested on orbit. All of these things were actually critical because, once again, it would be the first time that NASA exercised a functionality that they fully expected to have to use on the Apollo program. Basically, for its whole trip to the moon, the Apollo spacecraft was actually going to consist of a composite of the command and service module and the lunar module that were docked together, in the middle, facing one another, in much the same way as Gemini and Agena would operate. 
Once Apollo got to the moon, the lunar module would separate for its descent to the surface, and the single spacecraft would become two. After the lunar excursion, the lunar module would return to lunar orbit and dock with the command and service module, making them one spacecraft again. Finally, the lunar module would be jettisoned and the command and service module would complete the trip back to Earth. So you can see going back and forth between controlling two separate spacecraft to controlling one single combined spacecraft was actually a pretty critical engineering and technical skill that was going to be required for Apollo. And again, as Gemini 8 would show, um, it wasn't one that should be taken for granted at all. In addition to the basics of operating a combined spacecraft, NASA, particularly the flight crew and the flight control team, were also very interested in the docked operations with Agena because it was going to provide an excellent opportunity to much more flying on orbit than was possible with Gemini alone. Because the Agena carried a significant fuel load and because none of that fuel had to be protected for re-entry, it meant that the combined Gemini-Agena spacecraft would literally have fuel to burn. NASA planned to make use of this capacity by trying a variety of orbital maneuvers that were just too expensive in terms of fuel than were possible to contemplate with the Gemini capsule alone. These maneuvers would include flying to higher orbits than had ever been achieved before, something that was of great interest to the astronauts, but also of interest to NASA as a means of continuing to emphasize the lead they were building on the Soviet space program. So yes, while the Spirit of 76 had been a major achievement, there was still much to be done in the field of rendezvous and docking and docked operations to complete Gemini's work, both in preparing for Apollo and in continuing to push the envelope of the human spaceflight experience. Everyone in Gemini was looking forward to getting on with it, which is partly what contributed to the pressure that was placed on the Agena team to get ready for Gemini 8. So, maybe it's useful here to talk a little bit about the mission plan for Gemini 8, and in, to some extent, the plan for the remainder of Gemini's launch schedule. As we've said, the big boxes had basically been checked, but there were still a lot of details that NASA wanted to investigate through the Gemini program. Obviously, the whole spacecraft docking and, let's call it, um, composite vehicle operations was one of the topics that was of great interest to NASA and to the Apollo program. The other main area uh, that NASA was interested in learning more about was actually EVA. All the program had been able to um, check the EVA box quite early in the flight program. The engineering reality behind Ed White's historic spacewalk uh, was a bit more sobering than the public relations success had been. You'll recall that the EVA on Gemini 4 had been added more or less at the last minute in response to the Soviets' announcement that Alexei Leonov had performed the very first extravehicular activity in March of 1965. Gemini 4 had been a chance for NASA to prove that while the Soviets were first, NASA was really not that far behind. By demonstrating their own EVA only a few weeks later, and by doing it in a spectacular and public fashion, NASA had been able to steal much of the EVA spotlight from the Soviets. In fact, it's arguable that if today you asked most, even semi-knowledgeable people about the first spacewalk, most are much more likely to remember Ed White than Alexei Leonov. But uh, concealed under the public relations success 
was the fact that EVA engineering and planning had been a major accomplishment given the time that had been available. Um, but it was really not much of an experience to build on. It was probably fair to say that NASA engineers learned more on Gemini 4 about what not to do than about what to do uh, when planning and designing experiments for EVA. For that reason, Gemini 4 had been the last EVA test in the first half of the Gemini flight program, which is not to say that NASA engineers and NASA astronauts had not been busy thinking about it and planning EVA activities. It's just at this time, they were taking the time to do a more thorough job of it. And actually, one of the groups that was most concerned about the situation was, in fact, the U.S. Air Force. Remember that at the time, the U.S. Air Force was still very much planning to eventually have its own human space program, the centerpiece of which was intended to be the Manned Orbiting Laboratory. In 1965, MOL, as it was known, was very much a going concern and a growing program within the Air Force. Now, as I've said before, it's probably a topic that would be worth its own episode or maybe even series of episodes. But for now, let's just summarize by saying that the Air Force was interested in the Gemini program as a means of testing some ideas they had about how humans could live and work in space. One of the major concerns for the Air Force was whether it would be possible for humans to work in space independent of their spacecraft. In other words, could an astronaut leave the capsule or space station and go out into space effectively as his own sort of personal spacecraft? The secret to doing this was going to be the Astronaut Maneuvering Unit, or AMU. This was basically a backpack unit with uh, sidearm controllers. The unit included both a life support system, consisting basically of oxygen tanks, and a hydrogen peroxide propulsion system. It weighed in at about 76 kilograms. Now, the weight would not be an issue in space, uh, in terms of the astronaut being able to manipulate it, but the issue was that the AMU was large enough that it couldn't be stowed in the Gemini capsule. So it had to be stowed externally in the adapter section. So the EVA crewmen would have to leave the capsule and work his way back to the adapter section in space, pull the AMU out, and put it on, all while operating outside the capsule in zero-g. This was a pretty major step from Ed White's uh, effectively sightseeing tour on Gemini 4, in which he pretty much made up his own flight plan once he left the capsule, and during which time he really had not had to attempt anything nearly as physical demand physically demanding or as detailed as unstowing and donning the AMU looked like it was going to be. In fact, the Air Force was a bit, well, maybe more than a bit, uh, put out with NASA that they had been kept in the dark about the Gemini 4 plans until the last minute. Now, you will recall that this was because NASA was so worried about the success of the EVA that, in fact, that part of the flight plan was not even discussed with the whole flight control team until the last possible moment. So the Air Force, which had its AMU testing scheduled for Gemini 9, felt that NASA had missed an opportunity to do some testing that was more directly related to preparing for their test. It didn't help that after Gemini 4, NASA basically scrapped all further EVA testing while it focused on checking the uh, long duration and rendezvous and docking boxes on its list during the remainder of 1965. But the Air Force did have a point. 
The AMU was a very long step from the very simplistic tether and zip gun approach that had been taken on White's EVA. They lobbied hard, starting even in the summer of 1965, that there needed to be an EVA activity that was designed as a bridge between the first EVA and the full-up test of the AMU. So, NASA planned a significant EVA activity for Gemini 8. What the NASA engineers had designed was pretty much exactly a set of equipment that would bridge the gap between the Gemini 4 approach and the full-up AMU. The new EVA equipment consisted of two parts, a chest pack and a backpack. The chest pack was to be donned inside the capsule and contained a small emergency supply of oxygen and an 8-meter tether that included a hose that connected to the capsule's oxygen supply. The backpack contained a large internal supply of oxygen and a large supply of propellant for the zip gun system. The idea was that the EVA astronaut would put on the chest pack inside the spacecraft, connect it to the oxygen supply, and then they would open the hatch and leave and make, sure, make their way to the adapter section while using the oxygen supplied uh, from inside the capsule. They would then unstow and strap on the backpack. Then they could switch over to the backpack's oxygen supply and switch to a longer, lighter 23-meter tether um, that kept them connected to the capsule but didn't include an oxygen hose. The lighter tether and the larger supply of propellant for the zip gun would provide more scope for experimenting with free maneuvering in space than the setup on Gemini 4 had. While this would not provide the full freedom of movement envisioned by the AMU, the lighter, longer tether would hopefully provide a bit more scope for testing ideas about EVA maneuvering than White's experience had. Crucially, it would also provide needed experience with the whole process of donning special EVA equipment inside this spacecraft and in strapping into a backpack unit while on EVA. In fact, the degree of difficulty involved in making all of this work was sufficient that preparing for the EVA portion of the mission rapidly became a priority, at least for the crew. And speaking of the crew, the crew of Gemini 8 is notable for a number of reasons, some of which uh, are obvious at the time, and some of which would become obvious a few years later. Now, the commander of Gemini 8 was Neil Armstrong, who, of course, is perhaps the most famous astronaut of all time. In 1966, though, he was a notable choice still for two reasons. First of all, he was actually a civilian test pilot, although he had been a decorated Air Force pilot who had flown combat missions in Korea. As a civilian in the astronaut corps, he was certainly still in the minority in 1966, and in fact he was the first civilian astronaut to fly. He was also notable because he actually had been closer to being in space than pretty much any other astronaut that had not already flown for NASA, and that was because he had spent several years as a test pilot in the X-15 program, in which he had actually flown to the edges of space. Now, his pilot, Dave Scott, was also notable because he was the first of the FNGs, or 14 new guys, the third class of NASA astronauts to fly. These astronauts had only been recruited in 1963 and had been specifically added to the astronaut cadre to deal with the increased demands on the crew office as Gemini went to flight status and Apollo started seriously ramping up. I mean, you need to remember, of course, that to be assigned to a mission did not mean just showing up on the day and getting on board the spacecraft for a few days. 
Then, as now, astronauts were assigned to their mission well in advance of the flight. Uh, For instance, Armstrong and Scott were selected in August of 1965, more than seven months before their launch date. It also had to be remembered that in the days of Gemini and Apollo, full backup crews were also named, and those crews underwent training for the mission along with the prime crew. Being a part of a backup crew was every bit as much of a full-time job as being on the prime. That meant that every Gemini mission actually required four crew members. Now, NASA gained some efficiency from the system by generally promoting at least one and often both crew members from the backup on one mission to a prime crew on a later mission. But you do have to realize that the astronauts were required to fill many important functions beyond simply acting as flight crew as well. You know, of course, astronauts worked in ca- as CAPCOMs in mission control. This was and is a flight control position that can only be filled by an astronaut. In later days, it would be a rule that only an astronaut that had flown in space could actually be a CAPCOM. But that rule doesn't seem to have hardened yet uh, in, at the time of the Gemini program. But there were other important functions that the crew performed as well. Throughout NASA's organization, the crew, then as now, acted effectively as um, systems engineers, I'll call them both on the development and mission planning teams. Um, For those not familiar with the term, um, the systems engineer's job is to stand back from any of the detailed engineering teams and take an overall view of the project. Essentially, the systems engineer's job is to ensure that all of the various exquisitely designed pieces designed by all of the other engineering teams will not only fit together, but will work together as well. And not only that, but work together as intended. It's not a stretch to say that the more complex the engineering task is, the more important the system's engineering role becomes. When individual teams of engineers are focused on solving really tough problems, it's natural for them to get tightly focused on their own designs and not necessarily focused on how their decisions may be affecting or constraining other parts of the design. The job of the systems engineer is to be the one who is aware of how one team's decision may inadvertently be affecting and be affected by the others. Um, Presentations by systems engineers at design review meetings often start something out like, well, that's an impressive achievement. I really like what you've done there. Of course, it won't work because which is then usually followed by how the assumptions made by the design team can't possibly be met by one or more of the systems that it has to interface with. As NASA gained experience with developing and flying space hardware, they discovered that astronauts often made excellent systems engineers. First of all, almost all of them had engineering degrees, some at an advanced level. More importantly, as test pilots, I'm sure they all had a very finely tuned sense of when an engineer, who would never have to board the spacecraft, had made a decision that could potentially kill the person who did. In effect, this is kind of the definition of test pilot. I mean, a test pilot is the one who goes out and sees whether or not the decisions the engineers have collectively made actually result in a workable, or even survivable, vehicle. This combination of skills and outlook made astronauts invaluable members of the design and mission planning teams, as I said. Including them as members of the design and planning teams also meant that there was also early crew feedback and buy-in on any of the important decisions that those teams were making. 
Buzz Aldrin had already demonstrated how important that could be when he not only helped design the rendezvous procedures for Gemini 6, but he also effectively sold the very um, ground-centric early parts of those procedures to the astronauts who, as test pilots, were kind of sensitive about feeling like they were merely passengers in their own spacecraft during that portion of the flight. All of which little digression is in aid of saying that the crew office was, of necessity, growing, and new faces were not only appearing at meetings and in MCC, they were also showing up suited up on the launch pad. So, when the new guys, Armstrong and Scott, took a look at the mission plan for Gemini 8, the thing that immediately stood out to them was the whole EVA section of the plan. They kind of assumed that the rendezvous portion of the plan was understood. The Gemini 6 crew, along with Aldrin et al., had already given that a pretty good going over even before the flight. And even though it had not been tried on orbit yet, they knew it would be before they had to try it. Either the kinks in rendezvous and docking would be worked out by then, or, if things didn't go well on 6, they'd be looking at a whole new set of procedures anyways. So, when they looked at their flight plan, the thing that really caught their attention was EVA, particularly the part where Dave Scott had to don his chest pack after both he and Armstrong were in their pressure suits before they opened the hatch. This was the chest pack that, among other things, included eight meters of oxygen hose, and of course all of this had to be done in a space about the size of the front seat of a compact car, while weightless. And that was before the real EVA could start. Once all of that been, had been done, they still had to open the hatch, which had actually been an issue on four. Uh, and then Scott had to get out through the hatch, which was a tight fit when you weren't wearing a chest pack and trailing an eight-meter umbilical. Once he was finally outside, Scott would have to navigate fairly precisely to the location where the backpack was actually stored in the adapter section. Now, this doesn't sound like a difficult task, but it was actually something that Ed White had not even managed to do. He had basically floated around wherever he wanted to, but he hadn't tried to actually precisely navigate to any particular point. And, more importantly, he hadn't really interacted with the capsule the entire time that he'd been outside. So, again, this was going to be a task that had never actually been attempted before, and no one actually knew how difficult it was going to be. And, more importantly... It was a pretty difficult task to practice on the ground. I mean, in point of fact, it couldn't actually be practiced on the ground at all. Um, the only way that it could be practiced in a full zero-G uh, environment pre-flight was, in fact, in the Vomit Comet, in 30-second increments. So Dave Scott flew more than 300 zero-G parabolas to practice. In addition, he also spent more than 20 hours training on the air-bearing table, which... While it didn't simulate weightlessness, did simulate uh, frictionless movement. Uh, it was basically a huge um, air hockey table, uh, for those of you who are old enough remember those. Um, and the astronauts floated around on a millimeter-thick cushion of air, allowing them to get the feeling uh, for maneuvering using the zip gun in a frictionless environment. The astronauts also spent a lot of time in the capsule simulator, trying to understand the choreography that would be necessary to get them both into their pressure suits and to get Scott into his chest pack. They discovered that it wasn't actually any easier than it sounds, and that the biggest issue was sorting out the tangle of hoses, tethers, and cables, 
in that very restricted space, especially uh, while their vision was uh, restricted by their pressure helmets. But it did work. And to be absolutely sure, they actually did a whole practice run in the high-altitude chamber in St. Louis, strapping on the unit, opening the hatch, getting out, and getting into the backpack unit in a simulated altitude of 46,000 meters. Still, there were some nagging issues as training progressed. Um, the biggest issue was temperature. Various parts of the equipment kept icing or freezing during training. Now, since one of these things was the emergency oxygen valves on the chest pack, um, the astronauts felt with some justification that it needed to be fixed. And it was. All in all, as the flight approached in the winter of 1966, things were looking pretty good. The EVA equipment was still a little cranky, but the crew and the flight control team felt it was workable. The mission, which had originally been planned for two days, like Gemini 6 had been planned, had been extended to three, and this was seen as a success, because the secret to unlocking the third day was increasing confidence in the fuel cell system. When Gemini 8 had first been planned, the fuel cells had been enough of a question mark that the flight rule had been imposed requiring fuel cell rendezvous missions to be limited to two days long, now, which wasn't a lot of time when you spend half of the first day doing rendezvous. Uh, by late 1965, the McDonald team, was, who was responsible for the fuel cell engineering, felt enough confidence in their new technology to agree that three-day missions should now be fine. With the extra day added, there had been a lot of discussion about how to spend that time. Remember that unlike Gemini 76, where the operation after the rendezvous were pretty much icing on the cake, um, you know, a chance for the astronauts to practice some formation flying in space, the main objectives of Gemini 8 all began after the docking. In classic fashion, in these sorts of things and processes, Doing uh, what had seemed like the impossible on the previous mission was now just the starting point for the next mission. And NASA and NASA engineers had been waiting so long to tick the rendezvous box that they had built up a long list of things they wanted to try with the new capability. Uh, these ranged from basic maneuvering with the Agena, including flying to altitudes not previously attained, and which were unattainable with the Gemini spacecraft on its own, to doing rendezvous with phantom objects with the whole combined Gemini Agena stack, to doing multiple rendezvous and docking uh, maneuvers, um, demating and remating uh, with the Agena spacecraft multiple times. There was also a movement afoot to try a brand new rendezvous procedure that would allow the rendezvous to occur on the second orbit instead of the fourth. All of which sounds, you know, pretty typical to me. Everyone wanted to keep the ball moving forward. Like every good engineer I've ever met, the NASA engineers had no desire to do more tests of things that, in their minds, had already been proven. Um, in the end, though, cooler, or maybe older, heads prevailed, as they normally do in such situations. In the end, the Gemini 8 flight plan contained relatively modest objectives for docked operations. They didn't include multiple dockings or phantom rendezvous. In fact, for this first flight after the Agena mishap, it was even decided not to use the Agena main engine at all during the flight, so even the high-altitude flight test was removed from the flight plan. Which is not to say that the flight plan was not actually pretty full. I mean, in addition to the rendezvous and docking uh, and the EVA, 
There were a series of 10 experiments, including three, that were to be performed during the EVA. All in all, it was felt that the crew would have enough to do. Um, in some ways, the flight operations team eh, was a bit anxious not to push too hard on the flight plan either, because there were other factors that were complicating um, the mission control environment. There was, of course, the fact that this would be the first mission without Chris Kraft, and also the first time trying the uh, dual shift arrangement, and that by flight time, pretty much everyone agreed um, was, um, shall we say, a suboptimal arrangement. There was also the fact that in addition to the full Gemini flight control team, MCC also had to integrate the Atlas Agena control team. And remember, the Agena control team was a completely separate entity. Now, that team had been doing simulations with the Gemini flight control team, but they actually had no flight experience of their own because, of course, Agena was normally operated by the USAF with support from Lockheed. For Gemini, the controllers in the flight control room, or the front room, would be NASA personnel, um, who had been working on Agena for some time, but who had never actually flown it before. I'm pretty sure that they would have been supported in their back rooms by contractor personnel from Lockheed that had extensive experience with Agena, uh, especially given the issues that Agena had faced. But in the front room, uh, under the unwavering gaze of the flight director, the Agena flight control team were definitely seen as um, the new boys and also the most likely source of failure on the coming mission. Uh, by the way, you can see this as a bit of foreshadowing. Uh, we will definitely have cause to refer back to the situation in MCC as Gemini 8 unfolds. However, before we do that, we need to, get, need to get the pieces of Gemini 8 to orbit. As with the attempted Gemini 6 mission and the Gemini 76 mission, the launch choreography had to be planned pretty carefully, as the first vehicle had to launch into a very specific orbit in order for the launch parameters of the second vehicle to be valid, and the second vehicle had to launch within a pretty specific launch window in order to end up where it needed to be to start the rendezvous process. Now, unlike Gemini 76, at least, there was no scrambling around to complete a full launch testing and preparation flow after the first launch. Instead, though, there was a bit of scrambling to get and keep two launch flows synchronized uh, as small issues arose with both vehicles once they were on the pad. Um, the net effect of those small issues was a few days' delay. But on the 16th of March, all was in readiness. The Atlas booster was in the final stages of its countdown when Armstrong and Scott climbed aboard their Gemini capsule, while everyone, particularly the Agena engineers, kept their fingers firmly crossed that everything would get to orbit when and where it was meant to be. And in the end, that's exactly what happened. The Atlas booster launched the Agena spacecraft. Its initial trajectory was a little off, but it was corrected by the sustainer engine. The Agena engine worked exactly as advertised and deposited the Agena spacecraft into a 300-kilometer orbit, more or less. The Gemini launch was nominal, and it deposited Gemini in a perfect location to begin NASA's second attempt at rendezvous and docking. Gemini 8 was off to a great start. Um, it was also pretty much the high point of the mission, frankly. Now, I do hate to leave on that cliffhanging note, but I'm afraid that is all the time that we have for today. Tune in for the next episode to hear about the rest of the story of Gemini 8. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the
shattered 